So excited about this morning, so excited about what we've been doing for the last 35 minutes together. Hey, if you have your Bible with you this morning, go ahead and grab it, and if you would, open up to Luke chapter 24. We're going to start in Luke chapter 24 this morning, and then really we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at the first couple of chapters in the book of Acts. And the reason for that is because Luke is the author of both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And so what's happening is the gospel, the story, the message of Jesus Christ is being told in Luke. And then as that ends, it's almost like a continuation in the book of Acts. And so that's what we're going to be seeing together here in just a moment. Uh, But before we do that, I just want to acknowledge what a gift the last 35 minutes have been. Every single Sunday, we get to gather here together as brothers and sisters in Christ for the expressed purpose of unashamedly lifting high the name of Jesus Christ together. Now, I have brothers and sisters and actually family members uh, who are not in Christ. And what makes me grieve more than anything for my family who's not in Christ is that they will never experience what we get to experience in part here every Sunday and what one day in eternity beholding the face of God we will experience in full and forever. This is a blood-bought gift from Jesus Christ that we get to rejoice in together every single time we gather together. Well, this morning, we are stepping into our third Sunday of our We Are series. And before we progress any further in this series together, I think it's really important for us to just step back and see how all of these pillars or how this series works together. What we're asking is, What does it look like for us to be a people, for us to be individuals, and for us to be a church family that is increasingly about these four pillars in our lives, unashamed in our worship, unapologetically proclaiming the truth of God's word, being unafraid in our sharing of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and being unceasing in our humble dependence upon the Lord in prayer. As we're going to see next week when uh, Rick, one of our elders, comes and talks really kind of in addition to these four pillars and really the spirit in which these four pillars are carried out or lived out in our life is with unrestrained love. Unrestrained love both for the Lord and for others. But notice these four realities, these four things that we're talking about are called pillars. Uh, I know absolutely nothing about structural engineering And I'm not going to pretend to this morning, and I didn't spend a great part of my week thinking about structural engineering. Uh, But I looked at a lot of pictures, and it seems to me like pillars are really important for the structural integrity of any building. Now, pillars are put together and strategically placed, each one of them having a very specific role in ensuring that the structure stands. If one of them were to be removed it would compromise the entire structure and leave it vulnerable to collapse. That's how these four pillars, when we talk about them, our four pillars here at Harvest as a church and as individuals, we can't remove any one of them. We can't put greater importance or greater value on any of them. They all have to be working together so that the structure stands. This morning, we're focusing in on our third pillar, which is unafraid witness being unafraid or bold 
as we share the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, many of you, perhaps because of past experience, may be thinking to yourself right now, okay, it's guilt trip Sunday. So now we're gonna spend the next 35 minutes talking about how important it is to tell people about Jesus. And the whole time he's talking, I'm just gonna be thinking about how poor I am about telling people about Jesus and how many times I had the opportunity to tell people about Jesus and I didn't because I was fearful in that moment. Uh, Let me just say, that is not my intention for even a second this morning. And this week, as I spent time preparing for this message and thinking about how is it, Lord, that we can encourage our church family to be growing in unafraid witness, I asked the Lord, I begged the Lord, I prayed to the Lord, Lord, please don't let anybody, not one individual, leave this room feeling guilty because of their efforts and being an unafraid witness for you. And so instead, my desire this morning is to extend to each one of us an invitation an invitation into one of the greatest delights, one of the greatest joys that God has given us in Christ. Let me read this quote this morning, and this is what, uh, I remember the first time I read this, it totally transformed the way that I thought about serving the Lord. Read it with me. It says, too many evangelistic appeals are based upon this fancied frustration of Almighty God. An effective speaker can easily excite pity in his hearers, not only for those who do not know Christ, but for the God who has tried so hard and so long to save them and has failed for want of support. I fear that thousands of people enter into Christian service from no higher motive than to help deliver God from the embarrassing situation his love has gotten him into and his limited abilities seem unable to get him out of. Add to this a certain degree of commendable idealism and a fair amount of compassion for the underprivileged and you have the true drive behind much Christian activity today. This author then goes on to conclude, the God who works all things surely needs no help and no helpers. How is that this morning for like convincing you that you need to go out and share the gospel? Like not off to a great start. I am not here this morning to recruit you into being some kind of recruiter for Christ. Instead, it's about an invitation to what the Lord has given us and realizing this truth before we even get into talking about witness. And it's this, Almighty God does not need you and he does not need me for anything. Almighty God does not need me for anything. God has never once thought to himself, I am so glad that Cody is on my team. I have no idea what I would do without him. This would just be impossible. He's never thought that. And he's never thought that about you, and he never will. And that's a very, very comforting reality. God's self-sufficiency, his self-dependency demolishes my pride. Knowing that God doesn't need me brings me to a place of humility before the Lord. Knowing that he is the only self-dependent, self-sufficient one puts me in my proper place in understanding what the Lord has given us in calling us to Christ. He is the only being that is like that. In Romans chapter 11, it says, uh, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor that he might instruct him? And the answer is like, certainly not you and certainly not me. 
Then he goes on to say, and who has ever given Almighty God a gift that he might be repaid? And again, the answer is certainly not you and certainly not me, for all things are from him and to him and through him. To him alone be the glory forever. Now, maybe you're not really into quotes from old dead theologians. If that's not your thing, that's okay. Uh, Maybe this picture will help you understand what I'm talking about this morning. Uh, This is a collage of our son, Asher. Asher is two years old, and uh, he is just so much fun. But Asher loves helping. Asher loves to help his mommy and daddy. Anytime that we get ready to do anything, he like runs up to us and he comes into the room and he just stands and he's like, helper, helper, helper. I want to help, mom. I want to help, dad. Can I help? Is there anything I can do? He absolutely loves it. Now you see, uh, he loves to help in all kinds of activities. This first one here is him feeding our daughter, Everly. She's six months old. And uh, I don't know if you've ever fed peas to a baby. It doesn't go well almost all of the time. And then have a two-year-old try and feed peas to your six-month-old. Disaster. This one down here, he's feeding the dog. Uh, He loves to do that. And most of the time, most of the food ends up in the bowl. Uh, There have been times where he's taken some of the dog food and ate it. um, And really seemed to enjoy it. So, I don't know. I think that's cheaper. Maybe we'll go that route. This third picture here, uh, he was helping us make some Christmas cookies. And uh, as you can see there, the entire thing of sprinkles is empty because it all went on that one cookie, which he then thoroughly enjoyed. And then this last picture, we were looking at doing some measurements in our kitchen there, and honestly, he probably has more of an idea of what he's doing than I do in that picture. (laughs) Asher loves helping mommy and daddy because Asher loves mommy and daddy. It brings him great joy and great satisfaction to join us in whatever we're doing. I look over at him whenever he asks to help and he's in the middle of it and there's like this content smile that just overwhelms his face and it looks like there is nothing else in the world that he would rather be doing in that moment. That's what I want us to see this morning. That's how all of these pillars come together. You see, if I do not delight in lifting high the name of Jesus through unashamed worship, then I don't have anything to invite anyone else into. If I do not rejoice in and treasure and hear the word of God, then why would I ever call anyone else to treasure and delight in and to hear the word of God? If I'm not seeing the Lord as he's gloriously revealed himself in scripture, then I don't have anything to point anyone to. So unafraid witness, then, does not come from a guilt-ridden sense of duty. Unafraid witness comes from a deep-seated delight in God. Let me say that again because I think this truth will change the way that we think about sharing the gospel forever. Unafraid witness does not come from a guilt-ridden sense of duty. Unafraid witness comes from a deep-seated delight in my relationship with God, in the relationship that I have with my Father in heaven. And so what happens? What happens when people begin to delight in the Lord? What happens when people are gripped by the truth of God? Well, one story in our student ministries, we have a sophomore in high school right now, and 
coming home from this senior high retreat, a weekend where he was saturated in the word of God and spent 72 hours with brothers and sisters in Christ, unashamedly lifting high the name of Jesus. Uh, He was homeschooled for five years and he goes to his mom and dad when he comes home and says, mom, dad, uh, you know, there are not a lot of people that are talking about Jesus at the public school in our area. Do you think that next year, instead of being homeschooled, I could maybe go to that school and change that? And off he went and started this year at that school and has had opportunities to share the gospel and to start on-campus ministries. That's one example. Or what about this? Uh, A student ministries leader, one of our small group leaders, uh, gets an email from a parent on Monday morning. Now, those can go either way. We've gotten a ton of those. He gets this email, and it starts out with, hey, I just wanted to share with you one of the biggest headaches in my life. And you're like, okay, here we go. Uh, It's almost like he just wanted to forward it to me and say, deal with it. Uh, But as he kept reading, he said, one of the biggest and best headaches I've ever had in my life. Uh, This Monday morning, I have been talking with school administration, with parents, with teachers. My son, after being at student ministries last night and hearing the word of God preached, and by the way, I did not preach that night, okay? But after hearing the word of God preached, went to school on Monday morning and started sharing the gospel with literally everyone, And he was doing it at some of the best times and some inappropriate times, like while the teacher was teaching. Um, But anyway, I just wanted to share with you something that the Lord is doing in this young man's life. You see, this is what happens when we delight in our relationship with the Lord, when we delight in unashamedly worshiping Jesus Christ, and when we delight in proclaiming the truth of God's word. And so, with that understanding knowing that Almighty God does not need me, does not need you, does not need us for anything, and knowing that the supreme motivation for our sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with boldness is found in our deep-seated love and delight in the Lord, I wanna use the rest of our time seeing in Scripture what it looks like for this pillar to be lived out in our lives. Before we do that, let's pray together. Father, we are getting ready to enter into the good stuff now. We thank you for your word and for your truth, and we would just ask, Lord, that even as we hear your word proclaimed this morning, that it would be your words for your glory and for our joy, and that we would leave here with a greater view of who you are and with a greater delight in who you are, and that would cause us to be so excited about having opportunities to invite other people into this great joy of ours. And so we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, I asked you to turn to Luke 24 exactly 14 minutes ago, so you should be there. And we are going to start in verse 46. So this is Jesus speaking after he rose from the dead. And this is what he says to his disciples as the book of Luke comes to an end. He says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. As the gospel of Luke comes to an end, Jesus wants to make at least one thing very clear to his disciples, and that's the message of the gospel. 
He wants them to understand, hey, the message that I'm getting ready to send you out to go and tell, I wanna make sure you got it and that you know what it is and what's absolutely essential to communicate, and it's this, that the Christ, I, I lived, I died, and I rose again for sinners, and I will give repentance and forgiveness to all who turn from their sins and put their trust in me alone for salvation. So he clarifies the gospel. He puts it on the table for them to understand what they're now to go and proclaim to others But then look at what he says in verse 48. He says, you are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses of these things. This is a very simple statement, and yet it has massive implications. Think about it with me for a second. Uh, What does a witness do? What does a witness do? Uh, A witness is one who affirms or attests to something. They have seen something with their eyes, they've experienced something in their lives, perhaps they've heard it with their ears, and now they're being called upon to speak, to attest to the truth, the reality, the experience that they have had. It's been said by one saint of old that we are to preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. That's a really nice sounding statement, but it's actually not a biblical statement. And it's not what Jesus is calling his disciples to in verse 48 when he says, and you are witnesses of these things. You see, being a witness necessarily involves speaking. Being a witness means opening up our mouths. You have never seen a witness take the stand in a courtroom scene and when called upon to give witness to whatever it is that he experienced, he sits up there and starts doing some kind of interpretive dance to explain what he witnessed. No, every single time they open their mouth and they give clear testimony to what they heard, what they saw, what they experienced. You see, in the first century, uh, most of Jesus' disciples were martyred. They were killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, in the first century, you weren't killed because you were a nice person. You weren't killed because you were thankful to the Lord. You weren't killed because you were generous like Christians should be. No, You were killed in the first century because you opened your mouth and you spoke truth that others vehemently rejected. This is the same testimony that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. It says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? You see, when Jesus calls his disciples witnesses and you and me by extension, He is calling us to open our mouths and to speak. As Pastor Rick said last week when he's talking about proclaiming truth from God's word, we are to give clear, simple, and urgent proclamation or truth from God's word. Paul tells us that people cannot believe unless they hear. And we understand that people can't hear unless there's actually something to hear, words being spoken. Witnesses speak. Should our deeds match our words? Absolutely. But are our deeds equivalent to our words? Absolutely not. You see, it's not sufficient in witnessing for Christ. It is not sufficient for us to simply live in a manner worthy of the gospel. You are not witnessing for Christ until you speak on behalf of Christ. So see what happens then in verse 49. He calls them witnesses, and then he says, behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. 
He instructs them to stay in Jerusalem until they're clothed with some kind of power. And then verse 51, as the gospel concludes, we see Jesus ascending into heaven. So now if you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter one. So just skip the gospel of John, it's good stuff. But we're now looking at Acts chapter one as the story continues. In Acts chapter one, starting in verse eight, and it says, but you will receive power, this is again Jesus speaking, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, the story picks up right here exactly where it left off in Luke chapter 24. When Jesus told them that they would be clothed with power, and now he's giving them more specifically what that power is that they're going to be clothed with. He says it's going to be the Holy Spirit of God who comes upon them. We're going to see this in just a moment in Acts chapter 2, but before we get there, we can't miss verse 11 because Acts chapter 1 verse 11 is a crucial verse that actually drives the rest of the New Testament. In Acts chapter 1 verse 11 Uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples when all of a sudden, right in the middle of conversation, he like starts levitating and goes higher and higher and higher until eventually he disappears in the clouds. And then verse 11 is an angel speaking to the disciples and he says to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? And I think that they missed a verse in in your uh, translation actually because I think the disciples responded uh, because we were standing here talking to Jesus and he started floating And now he's not here anymore. Why else would we be looking into heaven? Well, he continues, well, men of Galilee, why are you looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Do you see that? Acts 1.11, that is the promise that drives the rest of the New Testament, and it's this. Jesus Christ is coming back again. Everything that we've just saw in the book of Revelation for the last year as a church family is going to happen. The king is returning. And the rest of the New Testament after this verse is essentially telling us stories and giving us instruction on how we are to live as those who are in a war zone awaiting the return of our king. And so this verse sets the trajectory for everything that we see from this point out, and it's where we find ourselves in the story between Acts 111 and Revelation chapter 22. And so these disciples return to Jerusalem in obedience to the Lord, and they wait. They wait just as Jesus instructed them. There's now 120 of them gathered together in a room, and now if you would please look at Acts chapter 2, Verses one through four. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, verse four is key to understanding this third pillar this morning. It says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak. If I am in Christ, if I have turned from my sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, I am now in Christ, and if I'm in Christ, 
then I am filled with the Holy Spirit of God. If I am in Christ, I am filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Notice what doesn't happen in this passage. Okay, the Holy Spirit doesn't just fall on the apostles. The Holy Spirit doesn't just fall on Peter, James, and John as the leaders of the apostles. It says that the Holy Spirit fell on all of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they all spoke. They all began being witnesses, giving testimony and witness to the things that God had done in Christ. Witnessing to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus Christ, is not just for the leaders. It was not just for Peter, James, and John. It was not just for the apostles. It was for everyone who was in Christ and filled by the Spirit. And this truth has massive impact on the way that we understand discipleship here as Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. The way that we intentionally seek to disciple people comes from this reality that all of us have been filled with the Holy Spirit of God. It's not a bring your family or your friends or your neighbors or your coworkers here and once you get them here, you've done your part. We'll take it from there. We'll share the gospel with them. We'll have them talk with one of the pastors in one of the back offices and we'll get them saved for Jesus. Oh, oh, how I, how we would hate to take away the joy from you in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sunday mornings, when we gather here together for worship, or small groups when we intentionally seek to walk with Christ with one another, the number one priority is not winning people to Jesus Christ. Gasp. That makes some of us feel uncomfortable, but the number one priority is not winning people to Jesus Christ. Yes, we pray that that happens. And 1 Corinthians chapter 14 even tells us that it will happen. And praise God for it when it does happen. But that is not the number one priority of what we're doing here on Sundays or what we're doing in our small groups. Instead, our desire is to grow healthy, disciple-making disciples because we believe that when disciples are healthy, that part of being a healthy disciple is actually sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and making more disciples. Now, uh, this doesn't mean that we come together here and we start talking about all these things and get excited about our relationship with the Lord and then we're all sent out as individuals into these different pockets and spheres that the Lord has placed us in. I don't know about you, but almost all instruction that I have received about sharing the good news has been about personal evangelism. Personal evangelism. Uh, just one person going out and sharing the truth about Jesus Christ. Now, the more I read about this, the more time I spent studying this and thinking about it this week, uh, this became more and more odd to me because witnessing for Jesus Christ can be a scary thing and I don't like doing scary things alone. Uh, I'm sure you don't like doing scary things alone either. If you ask people what hinders their witness, what hinders them from being bold in sharing the gospel of Christ, the vast majority of them will tell you that it's fear. Fear of rejection fear of looking silly, or fear of being lumped into some weird stereotype about evangelists. Uh, fear is what hinders us most often in our witness, but here's what we see in Acts chapter two. We see 120 disciples banded together, all proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ in community, as a group, together sharing the gospel. In Luke chapter 10, verses one and two, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he appoints 72 other peoples to join his disciples and then he sends them out 
ahead of him, and then this is what it says. He sent them out ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, I hear that, and I say, Jesus, you know, you really missed it on the whole efficiency thing. If you have 72 people, why not send them to 72 places rather than like 30, 40-some? You can get to a lot more places if you would just send them out one by one. And Jesus is like, no, that's not wisdom. That's not what I'm calling us to. Two by two, trust me. I'm God. I created this whole thing. I know how it works. Two by two is better. Trust me. The rest of the book of Acts shows teams of disciples going out and sharing the good news and establishing churches. It's not just one individual going somewhere and sharing this news. It's teams, brothers and sisters in Christ, together with one another. We should take our cues from Jesus and the scriptures rather than some of the things that we've come up with since. You see, the Christian life is not meant to be done alone. That means no part of the Christian life is exclusively individualistic. In Christ, God did not just call us to himself. He also called us to one another. And so when we're witnessing, when we're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, we don't have to do it alone. Let's witness together. Husbands, with your wives, inviting people into your homes and giving testimony to the grace of God in your life. Moms, dads, with your children, Maybe it's with a sports team and you're there with your son and you guys have the opportunity to come together as a team to witness to other people that are on their team sharing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. All brothers and sisters in Christ being intentional, we're gonna be with one another and our intent is to share the truth about Jesus Christ. And you think, okay, well that's the Bible uh, and that's great and I'm glad that there are a lot of examples in there but what about any stories that we know of here? I've got one. I've got a great one actually. Uh, here at Harvest, so there was a couple that used to be a part of our church family and this couple worked a warehouse job and as they were there, they spent years and years and years there uh, meeting the people, befriending the people, intentionally inserting themselves into their lives, caring for them, listening to them and they started establishing significant relationships with the people that they worked with. This couple came over to our house and they were sitting around the dinner table and they told us about their coworkers. And we sat there with tears coming down their eyes and we prayed for their coworkers that they would come to know Christ and have this joy and satisfaction in the Lord. One Sunday, this couple invited their coworker to come to harvest and worship. And as he came, their coworker came, uh, their entire small group of this couple knew that this guy wasn't in Christ. They knew that they were trying so desperately to point them to the good news of Jesus Christ. And so this man, this coworker, was engaged by this small group and welcomed into their community and started a relationship with them. Well, sadly, the couple that was working at the warehouse originally had to move out of the state, but when that happened, their coworker still had a desire to continue relationship with the people from their small group. And so he gets into the small group, and only two weeks into the small group semester, one of the members of the small group, not the leader of the small group, but one of the members of the small group, is sitting there asking questions, listening, hearing about this guy's life, and it gives him an opportunity to give witness to the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and upon hearing the gospel, the coworker professes faith in Jesus Christ. And then they all stand together and they take a picture and they send it up to that couple that moved away and said, welcome your new brother in Christ. <laughs> like, that is a beautiful picture of what we're called to be 
witnesses for Christ and doing it in community. And it's the exact picture that Paul paints for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 7. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but God who gives the growth. You see, this is what it looks like for us to be individuals. This is what it looks like for us to be a church family that has a culture of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not some awkward conversation that happened in an ill-lit corner of the office one time. It's people being intentional to invite people into their lives, to love people, to care for people, to listen to people, and then to share the grace of God in Christ and the gospel with the people that the Lord has sovereignly placed in our lives. And notice this too. This wasn't an event. This was a process that happened over years. It wasn't an event that happened one time. Oh, here it is. Here's the opportunity. Boom, let's see what happens. It was a process that happened over time and through relationship. Okay, so how did we get here? Uh, Back to Acts chapter two, verse four. It says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak. You see this verse that we're reading here in Acts chapter two and the story that I just told, uh, at no point in the story, at no point in the scripture uh, does it say something like, yeah, well, you know, it was just like I felt the Holy Spirit of God in this tingle down my spine and I just knew that it was time to share the gospel, that a door had been opened up to talk about Jesus. It's far more simple than that and it's far less subjective than that. These people were filled with the Holy Spirit, and so they spoke. If I'm in Christ Jesus, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, and if I'm filled with the Spirit, then I'm always being led to witness. So I don't have to wait for some magic moment to come down where it's like so clear that I can share the gospel. No, like all of us in this room are always being led to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. So we should always be prepared to speak truth about Jesus to those whom he's put in our lives. One more passage that I want us to look at. It's in Acts chapter two, verses 36 through 39. So after verse four, Peter, who only weeks before this denied Jesus Christ three times, but now after being filled with the Holy Spirit of God, stands up and begins proclaiming the truth of God's word unapologetically with Jesus Christ at the center of his message. And this is what he says in Acts chapter two, verse 36. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both a Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Verse 36, Peter opened up his mouth and gave witness. He proclaimed the truth with boldness. He didn't do it unnecessarily loud. He didn't do it in an obnoxious manner, but he spoke hard truths without apology, and he did it with clarity. 
He preached Jesus Christ crucified, and he preached dependently. You see, this crowd of people was the very same people that were shouting out, crucify him, only weeks before about Jesus. And so just by saying, Jesus, whom you crucified, demonstrates that they were doing this preaching, this proclaiming of the truth with an absolutely dependent heart. Lord, whatever you would have happen in this moment is up to you. We just wanna be faithful to what you've called us to do. And then look at verse 37. It says, when they heard this, when the people heard this message, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? When we witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ with boldness, what happens? Power. They heard the truth and it cut them to the heart. And then the people asked, what is it that we have to do? And in verse 39, Peter gives them the response. He says, the promise is for anyone for you, for your children, for those who are far off, the promise is for anyone to whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And that verse is a game changer. Verse 39, to anyone whom the Lord calls to himself. Hear this, I have never once convinced anyone into the kingdom of God. I have never once intellected someone into the kingdom of God. I have never once said the magical combination of words at just the right time so that it broke through somebody's stony heart and they asked the Lord to forgive them of their sins and put their full trust in Jesus Christ. I've never done that and I never will and neither will you. I am not called to save anyone. I am called to witness. I am not called to save anyone. I am called to be a faithful witness for Jesus Christ. Only God can do the saving and he's very good at it. So let's leave that in his hands and let's do our part in being faithful as witnesses for Jesus Christ. Yes, I should witness intelligently. Yes, I should take the time to become more clear and attempt to be more effective in my witness. Yes, I should sometimes even use persuasive speech, and yes, there are even times where I should beg and implore people to be reconciled to God on behalf of Christ. Yes to all of those things, yet all the while knowing that it does not depend on me, it only depends on God. God does not call me to be successful in witnessing, he calls me to be obedient in witnessing. I think part of our weariness in witnessing is our constant focus on what's supposed to happen in the lives of the people that we're witnessing to. And I am convinced that sharing my faith and regardless of their response is key to my spiritual health and to the spiritual health of our church. You see, it's less, it's not less about, it's equally about what's happening in their lives and about what's happening in our lives as we give witness to Jesus Christ. And so, with these passages of Scripture before us and the example of what it looks like to be a witness for Jesus Christ, I ask the question of all of us this morning, is this me? Is this me? You see, it's not about becoming some odd, strange vacuum salesman for Jesus Christ. It's about giving witness, about giving testimony to the one that you delight in, the one who saved you from your sin and revels in saving still more. So very practically, before we leave this morning, what does this look like? Three things. First, love others well. Love others 
well. The people in your life are not prizes to be won for Jesus Christ. They're people. And we should love them as people. We should serve them and care for them. We should intentionally invite them into our lives out of love for them. So first, we should love others. Secondly, we need to listen to others well. We should do a lot more listening before we do any speaking. We should understand how people think. We should understand what they value, what they care about, the kinds of questions that they're asking, the things that they're wondering about, the things that are important to them. We should listen to them and love them by listening to them and understanding what's happening in their lives. And then finally, we should lead others to the truth. Lead others to the truth, not throw the truth in their face, not, well, I put it on the table, I guess we'll see what happens, not like it's an event, but like it's a process in leading them to the truth. And then when I have the platform, when I am able to speak the gospel with clarity, simplicity, and with urgency, I should be intentional in my conversations. I shouldn't like wait to see if it happens to come up. I shouldn't like sit there and think, oh, what might be a good time to sneak it into the conversation and like totally change the whole thing? No, I should just be intentional. It's like, you know, this conversation is gonna be about this. This is what we're gonna talk about, and it's okay. One really easy way to do that is to go to your neighbor, go to your coworker, go to somebody in your family, and you say, hey, you know what? I've known you for however many years now, and I don't think I've ever just been able to talk to you about the thing that's most precious to me. Would it be okay with you if I shared that with you right now? And then you have the opportunity to give clear, direct witness to the gospel of Christ. What about at home with your family? Is it a weird thing for us to talk about the gospel? Or is it such a regular part of our conversations? Will our children be 12, 13, 14 years old before they're extremely familiar with terms like gospel and Jesus and salvation and faith and repentance and growth? Or are these just natural things that are part of our daily conversations? Are you loving your family well? Are you listening to your family well? Not just your family at home, but your extended family, which I understand can be most challenging. And are you leading your family to the truth of the gospel? What about at work or at school or with your neighbors? Do people know that you are in Christ? Do they know that you're a Christian? Do they know that you love Jesus? Not just guess, not just know that you go to church, not just think, yeah, I think they're probably, but do they know because you've said it with your words and you've told them that you love Jesus? You see, God has sovereignly placed each one of us where he has us in our different spheres of influences to be witnesses for him. Uh, if you're an engineer, be an engineer for Jesus. If you're a banker, be a banker for Jesus and think to yourself, the Lord has given me opportunities and relationships with these people so that I can give witness to them. You have opportunities to share the gospel with people that I will never encounter, and if I did, I would have no platform to share the truth about Jesus with them. God has sovereignly placed you where you are. There is no position, job, or anything that is more significant than the other. You are placed where you are because God has placed you there for the glory of his name. And so the people that you work with, do you have significant relationships with them? Your neighbors, have you invited them into your home? Think about this coming week. How can we be intentional to bring people into our lives, to love them well, to listen to them well, 
and to lead them well to the truth. And so with all of this before us, recognizing that Almighty God does not need us for anything, but he invites us into the joy of joining him in his work. And with knowing that our premier motivation in witnessing for Jesus comes from our delight that we have in the Lord, And as I become increasingly delighted in Almighty God and I see Almighty God and I hear Almighty God and I increasingly become an unashamed worshiper and unapologetic in my communication of truth, so I will grow as an unafraid witness. And I know that a witness speaks. And I know that I'm filled with the Holy Spirit of God and therefore I too am being led to speak about Jesus Christ. So for the glory of God, witness. For the glory of God, witness. He wants more disciples, more worshipers, more people giving him glory. For your joy, witness. For the joy of others in our church family, seeing and hearing stories of other people being reconciled to God, witness. And for the joy of those whom you share the transforming, life-changing, eternity-altering news of Jesus Christ with, for their eternal joy, witness. Close with this verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so, Father, that is what we pray this morning. We rejoice that you have done a saving work in our lives. We rejoice in the saving news and knowledge of Jesus Christ that has transformed us. And now, Lord, you call us to be ambassadors of the very same message that drew us into relationship with you. And so, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning that we would leave without any sense of guilt whatsoever, but only excited about stepping into the joy of sharing this great gospel. God, all the glory goes to you, and we can't wait to see more and more and more worshipers all lifting the name of Jesus high because of Christ. It's in his name alone we pray. Amen.